2006, we planted Life Church. First day, a group of about a dozen. By the middle of the week, it was we realized we were planting a church with about 50 people. But um, we started that day with uh, Pete and Kelly Jankowski in our living room, among a few others. And um, uh, I've told this story before, but I, you know, as you know, I repeat stories. Uh, somebody gave the first tithe check, and they handed it to me. And I said, no, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be the church accountant. So I didn't touch it. I didn't, I said, uh, who, wants, who, wants to, who wants to, you know, do the books? And Kelly said, Pete will do it. <laughs> so that's how this church got started. All right. And uh, for a couple of years, he did that. Um, but di- he really dove in as a pillar of the church. Pete and Kelly both. Kelly was leading worship. And uh, some have, you know, termed us, and I think it's somewhat of our culture to use this terminology, uh, son in the Lord. And I would, pr- I proudly you know, affirm that if that's true. Uh, I know that Pete has other men in his life as well. But I'll tell you this, he is a son of the house. He is a son of this church in so many ways. And we saw Pete grow in his leadership capability here. But since the Lord called him out of his his, uh, job, where he he had a job locally here in the city, and he resigned from that, and took a ministry role in a church in Columbus, Ohio. And I've just seen him grow in the Lord and grow in his leadership. He's a leader in his own right. I call you brother, not son. Because I know that uh, we're just, you know, taking down the gates of hell together. Uh, and I, I, but I will call him son on this level. I mean, we worked hard together. Uh, this couple worked very hard, like they were on staff full-time. And then on Sunday afternoons, here's what you do when you work hard in church life. On Sunday afternoons, they would come to my house, and Pete would yell at the Buffalo Bills on television. (laughs) And so we enjoyed, you know, our football game on Sunday afternoon. Almost every Sunday, uh, they were over at our house, and and he is a relative. There's no doubt about it. I'll tell you, I I don't know if there's anybody I would rather have with me staying here and taking the pulpit this morning, other than Pete Jankowski. Let's welcome Pete this morning. (laughs) Love you, man. Good morning, Life Church Buffalo. How's it going? Awesome. I feel like uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, it's no, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Except these aren't red ruby slippers. Uh, even though I know some of you, I've had like three or four comments already. You can go ahead and make fun of my pink pants. That's all right. I am masculine enough to rock it. I am confident in my manhood. All right, I make it look good. Real men wear pink. I'm just saying. <laughs> my brother is heckling me over there. But Pastor Craig, whether or not you want to call me a son in the Lord doesn't change the fact that that is exactly what I am. 
I am honored and privileged to be here standing in your pulpit, and I honor you as the father of this house and one of the fathers of the faith for me who has been a mentor. And it is very surreal for me to be standing in this pulpit, kind of where it all started. I preached my first sermon to a non-youth group audience in this church. So it's good to be home. It is good to be home. But for those of you who are relatively new here, if you've just started coming to Life Church in the last couple of years and you have no idea who I am, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a background uh, in addition to what Pastor Craig has already shared to let you know what we've been up to. My wife Kelly and I, as Pastor Craig just said, about two and a half years ago, packed up our family uh, and moved to Columbus, Ohio after I got a call from my brother-in-law, who is the executive pastor of a large, uh, growing progressive church in Southeast Columbus called Crossroads Church. Uh, it is a multi-site church, uh, which means it is one church really in two locations. And so they called me to see if I'd be interested in coming on board to be the campus pastor for their broadcast location. So I did that for the, about the first 15 months we were in Ohio uh, before uh, maybe six months into it or so. I said to the lead pastor, I said, you know what, because they had me come on with wearing two hats. I was the campus pastor as well as the small groups pastor. And I, I said to him, I said, look, I'm doing my best at both of these roles, and I will do an adequate job at both, but I'll never be great at either until we kind of separate these things and dedicate full-time resources to each position. And so it was about six months after I said that to them that they hired a guy that I was mentoring, actually, one of the volunteers at the church who I had kind of seen something in and had started to give some ministry responsibilities to, and they hired him about six months later to take over for me as the campus pastor so that I could focus full-time on our small groups ministry, which has been a tremendous blessing for me, because that is where my heart and my passion is at. Uh, my heart is discipleship, to see people growing in their faith and in their knowledge of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But I still, two and a half years into this thing, man, I tell you what, I pinch myself to think that I get to be a part of what God is doing at that church. It has been phenomenal. I mean, just to give you an idea of what God is doing, last year alone, we saw 664 people either rededicate their lives or place their faith in Jesus Christ. 664 in one year. I've grown up in church my entire life, and I've never seen or been a part of a church that was reaching the community and impacting people with the gospel. 200 of those got baptized last year. And this year alone, year to date, in just the first six months, we have seen 235 people commit their lives to Christ with 123 get baptized. But the part that's exciting for me on top of all that, as the small groups pastor, I, um, when I got there, there were about 11 small groups that were meeting on a regular basis. To date, we have about 45 small groups. So we've quadrupled the number of groups, which means that more people are being made into disciples and the Great Commission is being fulfilled. And I'm working on an event now where I hope to launch maybe 20 to 40 new small groups this September. So it's super exciting, but it is great to be home. Uh, I wanted to start my message today to, um, by letting you know, I, I recently heard a message by one of the other pastors on our staff back at the church where I'm at. Uh, that talked about this whole idea of risk and reward and, and regret. He mentioned about a study that he had recently seen on the internet. They conducted this survey of, survey of over 1,090-plus-year-old people, uh, and they asked him one question in the survey. They said, what is your biggest regret in life? And of course, when you ask 1,000 people one question, you get a lot of varied responses, but the number one response that most people had was that they didn't take more risks in life. They regretted not taking risks. 
And when I heard that, I started to ask myself the question and evaluate my own life and ask, you know what, am I taking risks? Or am I playing it too safe? I mean, of course, I took a risk in, you know, uprooting my family and leaving a very safe and secure job to move to Ohio to take a position with the church there. But how many of you know that the life of faith is a life of constant risk? God is going to continually ask you to do things that push you outside of your comfort zone. And so I started to look at my own life and say, you know what, am I going to reach the end and regret that I didn't take more risks, that I didn't reach farther or try different things? And so I wanted to start my message today in light of that by asking you all a question, kind of a rhetorical question that I'm sure you probably heard hundreds of times growing up. And it's this question of what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? How many times have you been asked that question? Hundreds, probably. And as kids, you probably answered it a number of different ways, depending on what age you were in in different phases of life. You know, some of us would answer, I want to be a basketball player or football player. Or, you know, I want to be a teacher or an astronaut, or I want to be a dancer or ballerina. Or, you know, if you ask my youngest son, Isaac, he always says, I want to play bass guitar. He wants to be a rock star when he grows up. Uh, that's just my boy. Um, but, you know, as kids... We, we don't think anything is outside of the realm of possibility. You know, we, we have these great aspirations to do anything, and we haven't learned yet that some things are just not possible. You know, we start to uh, I realize that, you know, something happens, though, as we get older. As we get bigger, our dreams get smaller, don't they? And I started to ask myself the question, you know, what is it that causes that limits our dreams or causes us to stop short of pursuing those things that God has placed in our hearts as kids to do and to become? What is it that causes these self-limiting mindsets to take over our thinking? What is it that keeps us from pursuing those dreams that God placed in us as little children? And as I thought about that in my own life, I think it pretty quickly came into focus for me, and it boils down to one word. And I think that one word is true for all of us here today, and it's the word fear. Fear. The fear of failure is a big one. The fear of the future, the fear of the unknown. But fear is what keeps us from taking risks in life and from doing what God has called us to do. And so I want to ask you another question. How many of you here today have been afraid of anything before? Half of you, come on. You've all been afraid of something. I'm talking like really, really afraid, though. Like fear for your life kind of afraid. I want to tell you a quick story about a time in my life when I was literally afraid for my life. I was about 16 years old. And actually, before I jump into this story, let me preface it by saying that I grew up with a very healthy fear of my father. Let me just put it that way. He was a strict disciplinarian, uh, believed in spanking, and as a firstborn son, let me just tell you that I got spanked a lot, okay? I'm still getting over the fact, a little bit jaded and jealous, that my younger siblings kind of got out on the cheap end of this deal. Uh, but I realized that my parents were learning as they went along, and they just got to learn on me. So um, sort of getting over it. But uh, so with that being the backdrop and understanding that, you know, I was afraid of my father, and all my mom had to say to us kids when we were misbehaving was like, just wait till your father gets home, I'll tell your dad. And instantly, we would, we would come into line because we did not want to face our father's wrath when he got home. All right, so with that understanding, there was this one time when I was 16 years old, and uh, my buddy from high school called me up. His name was Jason, and he says, uh, about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, he calls me up and says, hey, Pete, I got this great idea. 
Why don't you, after your parents fall asleep, why don't you take their van, come pick me up, and we'll go riding around town. Just have a good time. And being the bright, sharp 16-year-old kid that I was, I said, hey, that sounds like a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? Right? Famous last words. And so I wait until about 1 o'clock in the morning till I knew for sure that my parents were asleep. And I grabbed my dad's keys, and I went to my bedroom, and I made sure that I took my pillows, and I stuffed them under the blanket of my bed so that if they were to check on me, it would kind of look like there was somebody still in my bed. I sneak out the window of my bedroom onto the roof of the garage and jump down, jump in the van. I drive across town to pick up my friend. And uh, here's the thing, though. What do a couple of 16-year-old kids do when it's like 2 o'clock in the morning and there's nothing to do? Everything is closed. Well, we went to the grocery store, of course. We went to Wegmans on McKinley Parkway. I don't know if it was 24 hours back then, but we just kind of parked in the parking lot. And he had stolen or taken a couple of cigars from his dad's cigar supply. And we got to pretend and act like we were cool and, and pretend like we were enjoying this as we choked these cigars down, all right? And then when we finished that, we thought it would be a great idea to try and do burnouts and peelouts in my dad's mean, tough Ford Aerostar minivan. Oh, yeah, baby. We're burning rubber in the parking lot with this minivan and, and, and driving real fast and then pulling the emergency brake to try to do donuts in this minivan. I mean, just doing stupid stuff that stupid kids do when they should be in bed instead of driving around at 2 o'clock in the morning. So anyway, after about an hour or so just goofing off, uh, we decided to call it a night, and I proceed to you know, head through the village of Orchard Park to take Jason home and drop him off. Uh, and I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to my speed. Yeah, so you could probably guess what happened next. I look in my rearview mirror, and I see what nobody ever wants to see especially if you're a 16-year-old kid who doesn't even yet have his license. Did I forget to mention that part to you? I didn't have my license yet. I just had a permit. All right? So I look in the rearview mirror, and I see those flashing lights, and I think to myself, oh, sugar honey iced tea. Some of you will get that later. But fear instantly gripped me. All right? I became afraid for my life. And so I pull over, you know, the cop gets out of the car and comes up alongside the van, and he's shining his flashlight into the driver's side. And I roll my window down, and he's like, can I have your license and registration, please? And so I hand him my permit and registration. <laughs> and uh, he looks at it and says, well, this is a permit. Do you have your license? And you know, fear makes you do dumb things. And so I just blurted out, yes, I have it, but I left it at home. I, I straight up lied to the police officer like he wouldn't know that I don't have my license. And so then he said, well, do you have the permit that allows you to be out past 9 o'clock at night? I don't know if it's still that way, but back when I had my license, you had to have, or permit, you had to have a special permit to be out past 9 if you had a job that kept you out. And I never did get that permit. And so I lied to him again. I just said, yeah, I left that at home too. I'm sorry, officer. And so he proceeds to go back to his car and write out the speeding ticket and comes back to the van. And he's explaining everything to me. He says, here's your court date. Here's what's going to happen. Here's where you need to go and all that stuff. And then he says this. He says, but we have a problem. Because you don't have the proper documentation, I can't just let you drive home. We're going to have to ask you to leave the van here and uh, take you into the station and call your parents and have them come and pick you up at the police station. That fear I was talking about a minute ago, yeah, that just went to a whole nother level. 
Because up till this point, I mean, I was freaking out, but in my mind, I'm trying to scheme and think, all right, is there going to be a way that I can kind of maneuver my way through this and not have to tell my parents? Not anymore. I was done. And so I remember at 16 years old, feeling like a criminal as I'm being loaded into the back of a police car for the first time in my life. And, you know, that half hour, once we got to the, uh, once we got to the police station, that half hour waiting for my dad to arrive felt like the longest 30 minutes of my life. But I remember it like it was yesterday because the look on my father's face when he walked in the doors of that precinct, the daggers that he was staring me down with, oh my gosh, in that moment, I literally began to fear for my life. I thought he was going to kill me. For real. I mean, my friends were never going to see me again. He was going to kill me, bury me in the backyard, and I was done for. I'm here today, so obviously he did not kill me. Uh, he just made me wait a whole year to get my license, which was torture enough as a kid when all of your friends are getting their license and you can't drive anywhere. But, um, you know, I just wanted to give you kind of one example, one lighthearted, funny example of, you know, how fear can come on you when you've done something that you're not supposed to do. But how many of you know that fear can also keep you from doing things that you are supposed to do, right? For example, how many of you, for fear of maybe not being able to provide for your children, have stopped short of starting that business that's always been in your heart to pursue? Maybe. Maybe this will hit closer to home for more of you. How many of you, especially if you're a parent, how many of you, for fear of uh, what other people might think of you, have stopped short of disciplining your child when they're throwing a full-on tantrum and meltdown in the middle of Walmart? How many moms have been there before? Come on, raise your hand, right? Like, you know what you're supposed to do. Your kid just throws himself on the floor, screaming and kicking, yelling at the top of their lungs, and you feel all heads and eyes turn and look at you. What are you going to do in that moment? You know what you want to do, but you're afraid of what people will think of you if you do what you want to do in that moment. So you just say, wait till we get home, you know? And if you're not a parent here yet today, just wait. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> it really is. There's nothing like being a dad, but there are moments that, whew, tell you what, it challenges you. But uh, how many, maybe for fear of failure? That, that probably is the most common fear that keeps people from taking risks for fear of failure, have just not pursued that dream that you've always had in your heart to pursue or, or stop short of doing what you believe God has really called you to do. And the truth is that we've all faced fear. We're all afraid, and we've all faced it to one degree or another. So that's what I want to talk to you all about today. You know, so if you've ever felt that you're never going to overcome your fear, if you've ever feared that you're going to fail as a parent and screw up your kid for the rest of their lives... Uh, if you've ever been afraid that, you know, this whole faith thing that you're trying to figure out and walk out is maybe just beyond you and that great faith is just for the heroes of the Bible and you're just not that extraordinary. If you've ever been too afraid to pursue whatever it is God has called you to do, what he's created you to do, then today we're going to talk about how we move from fear to faith. So touch your neighbor and say, we're going to move from fear to faith today. All right, about half of you participated in that. I'm going to give you guys a heads up right now real quick, all right? I preach better when I get feedback, all right? So if I say anything in my message today that you agree with or that resonates with you, if you want to say amen, or if you want to say preach it, white boy, I don't know, say something, and you'll enjoy yourself more, and I'll preach better, okay? Is that a deal? Can we do that? Give and take. Preach it, white boy. Thank you. 
Awesome. Fear to faith. All right, so I want to talk to you today. I want to give you another story about a guy from the Bible whom I identify with greatly. And if you've ever struggled with, you know, that fear aspect keeping you from doing things that you've always wanted to do, then I think you'll identify with him too. His name is Gideon. It's an important story I want to share with you. But I was first inspired to preach about Gideon a little over a year ago uh, after watching, of all things, a VeggieTales video with my two boys. Um, you know, I, I watched it and I'm like, man, that's powerful. You know what? That'll preach. And so I made a mental note in my head that someday I was going to preach about Gideon. So you're going to hear some preaching today that has been inspired by Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber. Is that okay if I do that for you guys? All right. So I want to give you a little bit of a background on Gideon's story so that we all understand where we're at in, in the nation of Israel's history. So uh, Gideon's story is found in the book of Judges, which is an Old Testament book that covers the history of the ancient nation of Israel over the period of about 300 years following Joshua. So if you're not familiar with the biblical narrative, most people know who Moses was. You know, God called to Moses from the burning bush to go rescue my people from Egypt, where they had been in slavery for 400 years. And Moses leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea and gets them to the edge of the promised land, which is this land that God had promised to give the Israelites as an inheritance. And then before he dies, he hands the reins of leadership over to Joshua. And Joshua proves to be a valiant leader. He kind of gets him into the promised land. He's kicking butt and taking names, and he kind of gets the room all set up for him, and, and then he dies. And then the next 300 years in Israel's history is marked by a time when, as a people and as a nation, instead of keeping their eyes on God, they started to look around at all of the other inhabitants whom God had told to them to drive them out from the land. But they started looking around and saying, well, well, we want to be like them, and, and, and we want to do what they're doing, and we want some of that. And so they started copying the, the habits and the customs of the inhabitants, and they started worshiping foreign gods and idols. And you see this phrase appear over and over again in the book of Judges. It's this phrase that says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Just do what you feel is right. Whatever you think is good, just whatever feels good is right. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And so you see this cycle appear over and over again in the book of Judges. It's kind of the theme of Judges. It's this cycle of disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Disobedience, disaster, deliverance. The people would disobey God. God would remove his hand of protection and blessing from them as a people. Disaster would come upon them. Eventually, they would get tired of the disaster. They'd cry out to God for help and say, God, rescue us. We're sorry. We repent. And then God would send a judge to deliver his people, hence the name of the book. It's a period of judges that God sends to help rescue them from these different cycles of disobedience and disaster. And so that's where we meet Gideon. Gideon is one of those judges that God sends. So we're going to be in the sixth chapter of the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles with you today or your electronic device, uh, you can follow along with us. If you don't, that's okay. We will have the words up on the screen for you. Um, I wanted to talk about Gideon today because he, like so many of us, believed in God, but he allowed fear to kind of define his existence. But he didn't stay there, all right? And that's why I want to look at his life today. And so we're going to jump into his story. And as we talk through it, I'm going to give you several truths that you can stand on. And if you're a note taker, I would encourage you when we get to these truths to write them down so that you can look back on them later and really get them into your spirit and have, have God commit them to you so that you can move. Again, we're trying to move from fear 
to faith today. Say from fear to faith. All right, you're all still with me. I haven't put you to sleep yet. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1 of Judges. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Disobedience. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Disaster. You see the cycle again. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So basically, the people of Israel had to flee their homes, their towns, their villages, and flee to the countryside, and they've built shelters for themselves in the mountainside. They're basically refugees in their own homeland. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined all of the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle, nor donkeys. If we skip to verse 6, it says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So here's what happens. They disobey God, so for seven years, God allows these Midianites to kind of trample all over them. And after seven years of being so impoverished and having everything taken away from them, the nation did basically what we did when we were in high school, which is that you have to call the one who set the rule, whose rule you broke, to bail you out from breaking the rule they set, which is another way of saying, dad, I'm at the police station and I did what you told me not to do. And what you said would happen happened. So I need you to come down here and bail me out from what you said would happen if I disobeyed because I have, right? They had to call on God whose rules they had broken. And so finally they, they cry out. And this is when Gideon enters the picture. And the cool thing about it is this, you know, when you look at this cycle, when the nation would rebel, but then repent and turn to God, do you know how God would respond to them? He would turn back to them because that's what God does. He is a God of mercy and he does the same thing with us. No matter how many times we turn our backs on God, when we repent, when we turn back to him, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He's a God of mercy. And so the people finally have had enough of this oppression, and they cry out to God, say, God, we're sorry, right? Everybody, we're sorry. God, will you please come and send somebody and rescue us? And that's when we meet Gideon. So we're going to jump to verse 11. It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat, and this is interesting, in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. I want to pause at this point in the story here to kind of illustrate something to you because this is interesting to me. See, threshing wheat was something that was supposed to be done up at ground level, out in the open, in an area called the threshing floor. Now, I brought a picture to show you guys what a threshing floor would have looked like back in ancient Israel. All right, it's this big open area out at ground level where farmers would gather the wheat that they had harvested to separate the chaff from the wheat. Now, the chaff was the unusable part of the wheat, all right? And so what they would do is they would take the wheat and throw it up in the air, and the wind would, would blow the chaff, and the heavier part of the grain would fall back down to the ground and remain, which is what they would use to make bread and different things like that. What's interesting to me, though, is that it says Gideon wasn't threshing wheat on the threshing floor. He was threshing wheat or trying to in a wine press, it says. Now, I brought another picture to show you what a wine press would have looked like back in ancient Israel. 
All right, I don't know if you can tell from this, but there's a big hole here with a ladder inside of it, just to give you some perspective. And, and a wine press was an area where they would crush grapes to make wine. All right, it was basically a hole carved out of the stone in the ground. Now, there's no wind in a hole in the ground. So this is a pretty ridiculous task that Gideon is trying to do, threshing wheat in a wine press. I don't know what he's expecting to do, maybe throw it up and blow and expect to separate the chaff from the wheat. It's ridiculous. It's like trying to brew coffee in a thimble. It's just, it's dumb, but fear makes you do dumb things like thresh wheat in a wine press or lie to a police officer. I mean, I don't have to give you examples of, of dumb things that you've probably done because of fear. We, we keep this mental list in our minds that we beat ourselves up over of things that we've done because of fear. But fear also makes us hide from things or from people that we shouldn't be hiding from. If you know the story, like I said, God said that they were supposed to drive the inhabitants of that land out and that God was going to give them the promised land. But here we see the inhabitants oppressing the Israelites. They're hiding from the very people that they're supposed to be driving out. And so maybe you're here today and you feel safe in the confines of your wine press, aka your job. When deep down inside, you know that God has called you to be in that out in the open space that requires faith to operate. So God appears to one of the most unlikely characters in all of Israel, a normal, ordinary farmer just trying to squeak out his normal, ordinary existence by hiding. And look at what God says to him. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Wait a second, let me pause here, because this is, to me, a great example of biblical humor, all right? I wonder if Gideon, in this moment, kind of looks around when he hears this address, sees that there's nobody else the angel could possibly be talking to, and I wonder if he's not thinking to himself, I'm not really sure who you're talking to, okay? Because first of all, I'm a farmer, I'm not a warrior, and second of all, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm hiding in here, okay? I'm not a warrior, I'm hiding, I'm afraid for my life, I'm just trying to get some food for my family, now, before we continue, this is important because I think this is where some of you are today. You know, you've lost sight of who you are. You've lost sight of who God has called you to be and what he's called you to do. You've forgotten the God of your childhood. Those nights at youth camp when you would rededicate your life to him. You've forgotten the answered prayers and, and the times when God has been good to you. And you find yourself in this place in life right now where everything around you looks the same and you look the same as everyone else around you, even though you know he's called you to be different from the people around you. And there's this battle going on in your heart, and God would say to you today, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But you might think to yourself, um, uh, do you know where I was last night? Have you not been following my life, God? Do you not see my Twitter feed, my Instagram feed? Do you not see the things I've been up to lately? Do you know how long it's been since I've read my Bible or prayed or how long it's been since I've even been in church? God, do you know how far I've drifted? But God says to you today, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You know, sometimes I wonder, 
if, um, if God is just really bad at giving nicknames. When you look throughout the Bible at some of the people that he'd given nicknames to, uh, you just wonder if maybe he should stay out of the business of nickname giving. Uh, for example, Abraham. You know, he calls him the father of many nations. Awesome, right? The only problem is he's childless when he gives him that name. You know, he promises to give him and his wife, Sarah, children, so many, in fact, that they would be more than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. His descendants would be innumerable. But it would be decades before that promise would come to pass. And I wonder if at any point along that journey, waiting for that promise to arrive, if Abraham was finally just like, you know what, God, enough, okay? Is this some idea of a cruel, sick joke, calling me a father when I have no children? Or what about Peter? In the, in the New Testament, one of Jesus' disciples, who was originally named Simon, but whom Jesus renamed Peter, which means the rock. Like, are you for real? Are you kidding me? Like, Peter, of all people, this impetuous, impulsive guy who was known for always sticking his foot in his mouth and getting himself in trouble and denying Jesus, any of the disciples, but Peter would be this guy who you would think of as this picture of stability when you think of the rock, but aren't you glad that God doesn't call you who you are? He calls you who you will be. Amen. He doesn't see what you've done or even who you are right now. He sees who you will become through him. Some of you think that's good news. And so Gideon says exactly what we think. In verse 13, he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Now, this is great because many of you have said the same thing. I know you have. It goes like this. God, if you are good, then why the bad? God, if you are for me, then why is the world against me? Why do I still not have a job? Why am I still single? Why can't we have kids? God, if you're good, why all the bad? Why, 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 why? And the good news is this, and that is, if you've ever asked that question or any version of that question, Gideon asked the exact same question roughly 3,300 years ago. It's in the very text of the scripture that we are reading, and it's off. The thing is, God is not offended by our why questions. It's often our why questions, as we'll see, that end up bringing us back into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so he continues in verse 13, he says, where are all of his wonders, God's wonders he's talking about, that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. He says to the angel, yeah, 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 you know what? I've heard the stories before, okay? I remember my grandparents telling me when I was a boy that you rescued them from Egypt and all that stuff. But God, don't you see that we're oppressed now? God, why won't you do for us what you've done for them? Does that sound familiar? God, why won't you do for me what I've heard you've done for others before? Do you care what I'm going through? God, where are you? And so in verse 14, the Lord turns to him and says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? You notice how God doesn't even address Gideon's why question? just kind of skips right over it. 
You know, God doesn't always answer our why questions either, does he? He just says, go in the strength you have and save Israel. And I wonder if Gideon's like, um, did you not hear anything I just said? And how is that supposed to work anyway? What strength do I have? Did you not notice I'm hiding here? I'm the weak one. And God calls to him and says, am I not sending you? Now, this should be the part of the story where Gideon just stands up tall and throws the wheat down and walks out of there and God does something amazing through him, right? No, wrong. This is history. It's not a fairy tale. And so this exchange continues and we look at verse 15 and it says, Gideon replies, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. See, I love this because if you know... Uh, the history of the nation of Israel, Manasseh was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel came from the 12 sons of Jacob who would be renamed Israel. And those 12 tribes would become the nation of Israel. And Manasseh was one of the smaller tribes. And so basically what Gideon is saying here, he's like, hey, look, I'm not even from a famous tribe. And my clan is the weakest in the whole tribe. And I'm last in my family. Translated, Hey, I went to junior college, okay? And I didn't even do all that well. In fact, I dropped out. I didn't graduate, okay? I don't have very much money. I'm barely middle class. I have no friends. I don't even have a girlfriend. I'm not on Twitter. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm barely on Facebook. I've only got like four friends, and they're just the ones I asked to be my friends so I could figure out how this whole thing works but you're coming down here bothering me, telling me I'm supposed to be some mighty warrior who's going to save my nation? You know, why is it that anytime God speaks destiny into our lives, our immediate instinctive response is to disqualify ourselves? Can I tell you something? The first truth I want to give you today is that your pedigree doesn't determine your purpose because God doesn't call the qualified he qualifies the called. I'm going to say that again because some of you need to hear that. You need to get this in your spirit, all right? Your pedigree, your past, your qualification, your credentials, or lack thereof doesn't determine the future that God has purposed for you because God doesn't call the ones you think are qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls, and he has called you. Your pedigree doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You see, doubt is the constant companion of destiny and fear the constant companion of faith. Anytime you go to take a step towards whatever it is you feel God has called you to, fear and doubt are going to be right there with you every step of the way, whispering in your ear, you can't do that. You're going to fail. Don't bother trying. You're not qualified, right? Fear creates insecurity in us. You can hear it in Gideon's response. The same response came from Moses when God called to him from the burning bush and said, go free my people. And how did Moses reply? He said, who am I that I should go? And we respond the same way, don't we, when God calls us, but who am I, God? I can't do that. That's, yeah, I'm not qualified for that. I don't have the skill set for that. So how does God answer? 
Let's take a look at verse 16. Then the Lord answered and said, oh, then never mind. I must be at the wrong house. Yeah, those of you that are following along in your Bibles know that that's actually not really what it says. I just wanted to see who was paying attention and grab your attention because what comes next is so important. Because I want to ask you a question before we look at what God actually says. Are you going to believe your estimation of you or his estimation of you? Because let me tell you how you view you. And I know this because it's how I view me. You view you based on what everyone else around you has said about you. But what if they're wrong? What if you've been living your life the same way everyone around you has been living their life, dating the way they date, spending money the way they spend money, and, and doing things the same way as everyone else around you, and dreaming the same small dreams that everyone around you has been dreaming? But what if God sees you differently? Because let's look at what he actually says in verse 16. The first part of that verse says, the Lord answered and said, I will be with you. I will be with you, he says. God tells Gideon, I am the only credential you need. Which brings me to the second truth that I want to give you, which is this, that God sees our possibilities through the lens of his power. All right, the apostle Paul said it this way, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. See, God doesn't call you to do the things that you feel qualified or strong enough to do in your own power and your own strength and your own talents. Because if he did, we wouldn't need him. He calls us to do things that we don't feel qualified to do because it forces us to rely and depend on his strength. He wants us to want him. He wants us to need him. So he sees what we're able to do through the lens of his presence and his power working and operating in our lives. Somebody say amen. That's good news. I will be with you, he says. The question is, Gideon, the question is, mom, dad, the question is, business owner, employee, the question is, account executive, the question is, high school student, college student, will you be with me? because I am with you, and I want to do great things through your life. But will you be with me? And this is why this is so important, because you all have the freedom. We all have the freedom to live our lives however we want. We can do whatever we want, whenever, wherever, with whomever. You have the freedom to do what is right in your own eyes, just like the Israelites. But you will miss, you will miss you will miss the opportunity to become what God has called you to become and to do what he has called you to do. Will you be with me? And so here's the defining moment in Gideon's life. God isn't saying, here's some great gift, Gideon. Now go defeat the Midianites. He's not, he's not giving Gideon, here's how to defeat the Midianites for dummies manual. He's simply saying, Gideon, will you just believe me when I tell you that I am with you? And will you live your life as a man who is convinced and confident of that reality? 
that I am with you. And my friends, that's what God is asking of us today. Will you believe that God is with you? That the creator of the universe is with you, that he lives in you, that he is for you? Will you, will you live your life and make every single decision with that knowledge, with that understanding, with that conviction to know that the creator of all things is with you. Mighty warriors. So the rest of the story kind of goes like this. I don't want to, I don't have time to kind of go into great detail about how the story ends, but I don't want to leave you hanging. So I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version of, of how the story kind of wraps up. Later that night, God tells Gideon to go and tear down his father's idol. If you remember, the, the nation was worshiping idols and pagan gods. And, and so he gives him, I think, this, this small initial test before he actually has him face the Midianite army, I think, to kind of help build his faith a little bit. And so it says that Gideon sneaks out under the cover of night because he's afraid to do it during the day. And he takes 10 of his servants with him because he's afraid to do it by himself. The fear is still there, but he takes a baby step and he does what God asks him to do. And from this point forward in the story, we see Gideon's confidence begin to grow, which brings me to the next truth that I want to give you, which is the distance from fear to faith is a simple step of obedience. When we do what God tells us to do, when we are faithful with the little, he will entrust us with more. The distance from fear to faith is a simple step of obedience. So then the story really starts to accelerate if you read it in Judges 6 through 8. But Gideon then asked God for a couple more signs on the threshing floor, which is interesting to me that what started in the wine press, which should have been on the threshing floor, has now come full circle. And he's on the threshing floor basically asking God to prove himself. He's asking God for a couple of miraculous signs so that he really knows that God's really going to do what he said he's going to do. And Gideon's a lot like us in that he has these moments of faith sandwiched by moments of doubt and fear. But he takes a baby step and his confidence begins to grow. And then God does what Gideon asks him to do. He does the miracles and then the roles reverse. And now God is the one that starts asking Gideon for some things. And he says this, Gideon, you have too many men in your army. And if you know anything about the story, I find that interesting because as we read the Midianite army was 135,000 people strong. Gideon's army was 32,000. Not quite sure how that math works out in God's economy because they're already outnumbered over four to one. But basically what God was telling Gideon was that, hey, if you defeat the Midianite army with this army, you're going to take credit for it. And I want everybody to know that it was me that delivered you. And so he takes Gideon to the proverbial threshing floor to sort of separate the chaff of his fear from the wheat of his faith. And he reduces the size of Gideon's army, not once, but twice, first to 10,000 men, and then to a mere 300 men. 300 against 135,000. I would encourage you to read the rest of the story when you get home. It's a fascinating story about a guy who was literally afraid for his life but once he chooses to believe that God is with him, he becomes something else entirely and is the leader of one of the greatest underdog stories the world has ever heard. 
And let me tell you something. What is unthinkable and undoable on my own becomes unstoppable when it's God and me. I love what Pastor Stephen Furtick says. You know, several years ago, he was uh, preaching a message. Pastor Stephen Furtick is the the lead pastor at Elevation Church, if you're not familiar, down in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, another multi-site church that God is doing incredible things through. And he once said this in a message. He said, you know, it's dangerous to think more highly of yourself than you ought. But it's equally dangerous to think less of yourself than God does. That's good, isn't it? I like that. It's dangerous to think more of yourself than you ought. That's pride, right? We don't want pride that's dangerous. But I think he's right in that it's probably equally dangerous to think less of ourselves than God does. See, we are made in the image of God. We are the crowning jewel of his creation. When he made creation, he he looked at everything on each day and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he made mankind and said, it is very good. We bear the image of creator God on our souls. And Jesus paid too high of a price in dying a brutal death on a cross for us to live beneath our true calling as sons and daughters of the most high God and the, the, the mighty warriors that he has called us to be. Too high of a price. You know, I'm not trying to preach a message today about the power of positive thinking. I'm not just trying to, you know, help you reach your full potential. All those things are great. What I'm trying to do is just shake the, the fear out of you, the apathy out of you into realizing that for far too long, you've let fear define your decisions and determine what you will and won't do in life and who you will and won't become. I'm challenging you to let faith rise up in you instead and ask you to just believe that God is with you, that he's for you, that he lives in you. So here's what I want you to do, guys. I'm I'm closing now, and I didn't want to just come here today and preach a message that would hopefully inspire a couple of you, but, you know, we all walk away from here mostly unchanged, and we forget what we've heard in a day or two. So I wanted to give you some practical ways that you can kind of apply this to your life. Because to me, the whole goal of hearing anything, anytime the gospel is preached, that it would be transforming, that we would be changed when we've heard the truth. And so the first thing I want you to do this week is to simply write down whatever it is you feel God has called you to be or do. Write it down. There's something about having a a vision for your life that needs to be visible, It gives us direction. It gives us accountability. So write it down and put it on your fridge. Keep it in front of you. The second thing I want you to do this week is if the distance from fear to faith is a simple step of obedience, then this week I want you to take one small step towards whatever that thing is that you wrote down that you believe God has called you to do. Take one step this week. doesn't have to be a big step, but just take one baby step. So what is it that Fear has been keeping you from doing that you know God has been calling you to do. You know, some of you have been feeling that, that prompting or that urge to maybe get more involved here at the church on the weekends to volunteer, to help out in kids' life, or as an usher, or you heard this morning, Joni announced that we need PowerPoint volunteers or, or you know, uh, VBS volunteers. We were saved to serve, not saved to sit in a seat and just occupy space. We're saved to serve. 
Maybe God's calling you or leading you to, to start a Bible study or small group to help other people in this church connect relationally that, so that together you can start growing in your faith and putting this thing into action. You know, maybe there's some people in here at 45, 50, 55 years old, I don't know, are going to enroll in college this week to pursue that degree that you've always wanted. But take a step this week. You don't have to know what the final outcome is going to be. You just have to be obedient and take one step. And then let God show you and reveal to you what the step after that will be. You know, maybe you've got a dream or a vision for a business venture or you know, a company that you want to start up and, and you need to start talking to the bank or to some investors and, and try and put this thing together, but write it down and take a step this week. Maybe you're here this week, you know, and you've approached that line, spiritually speaking. You're here, you know, every so often, maybe every week, and you kind of like the way you feel, and, but you're still not really sure about this whole Christianity thing, this life of faith. You've got a lot of questions. You've got a lot of doubts. You know what? God's not afraid of your doubts but you've approached that line and you've never really crossed it and invited Jesus Christ to come and take control of your life and have committed yourself to following him. That can change today. But whatever it is, take a step. And the last thing I want you to do this week before we close, and I'm just talking about this week because a lot of times when you talk about, you know, action steps that involve like the rest of your life, it gets overwhelming and, and we get discouraged and, and so we quit before we even start. And so I'm just talking about the next seven days. I'm challenging you to do these three things. Write it down, take a step. And the last thing is to every morning this week, when your feet hit the floor, I want the first words out of your mouth to be a short, simple prayer to your heavenly father and say, God, give me the courage to follow your dreams for my life this week. Help me to believe that I am who you say I am, that you're with me. Can you do those three things this week? Mighty warriors, God has called you. He's called you. He sees you for, not for what you've done or for who you are right now. He sees you for who you will become with his presence and power working in your life. What would you do tomorrow if you woke up and you were absolutely convinced and confident that the creator of everything that we see and know was with you, that God is in you and that he is for you? See, that was the destiny that Gideon was invited to. And it's the same reality that we have been invited to. Gideon stepped into it, and God did amazing things through his life. And so my question to you today is this. Will you? Will you step into it? Will you believe it? Will you live like you believe it? So can I pray for you today? Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how your word challenges us. And God, I thank you for men in the Bible like Gideon, whom we can identify with, who were afraid. Lord, like so many of us are, we've lost sight of who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. And so God, this morning, we are reminded of the way you see us. And so right now, God, in this moment, Jesus, would you do what no sermon can do, what you do, what no communicator can do, God? And would you, in this moment, God, open up our eyes to see ourselves the way you see us? Holy Spirit, would you break off the power of the lies of the enemy that we have believed for far too long? And would you 
just impart faith and boldness and courage to rise above that fear and to say, you know what, as of today, I choose to believe that God is with me and that I can do anything he says I can do. God, would we be a church of people who live on purpose, not stumbling through life, not just settling for the meager existence that we know, just trying to make ends meet and pay the bills and, and, and just keep things together. But God, would you give us a vision for, Lord, the very reason you created us. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. God, so right now, would you place in every single one of our minds those works that were in your mind when you created us so that we can start moving towards those things, so that we can rise up in faith and walk about our, our jobs and in our neighborhoods and our communities, God, with a sense of confidence where we can stand up with our shoulders back and our head up and know that Jesus Christ is with us. Lord, we love you. Jesus, I ask that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, God, would you draw them? Would you woo them to yourself? It's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray that, that loved us. He loves us so much that he willingly laid down his life on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. All of God's people said, amen. amen. Church, I love you, and I hope you were blessed by God's word today.